Well, as your seat, sitting down and getting settled, open your Bibles to the first chapter of Romans. We are in our, our second study in Romans. We will be here for several months. Uh, we're going to study through the first five chapters together and understand just the, the richness of what has been described as the greatest letter ever written. As the Apostle Paul begins to tackle just this unbelievably rich treatise on the doctrine of our, of our justification and ultimately our, our glorification and all the steps in between. As we look today, I'm, I'm reminded, we got, a, we got a flyer in the mail. Many of you are on the Answers in Genesis uh, mailing list. We got a flyer in the mail several weeks ago that Answers in Genesis this summer is sponsoring several whitewater rafting trips through the Grand Canyon. And I don't know about you, but I, I just covet that opportunity. It would be a, a tremendous time. And you're going with a, an AIG geologist. And as you go through this canyon, and you, you get to camp on, the, on the, the beaches there, camp on the side of the river, and explore in detail, and just literally pick at the rocks, and dig amongst the glory of God's creation. And, and I think that's just, it's awesome to do that. The other tour I've always wanted to do, and, I, and I've shared with some of this before, I'd love to do one of those helicopter tours of the Grand Canyon. I'd love to be able to just do the flyover, see the whole thing in all of its scale, in all of its majesty, to, to get, a, get a perspective of the whole thing in, in relationship to all of its surroundings. In a way, that's what we're doing this morning. As Paul opens this, this doctrinal statement that is the book of Romans, we're going to be doing a little bit of a flyover. We will be tempted to park the boat along the way this morning and, and just, just really dig in to some of the, just key in on words. And, and I could tell you, we could be months just in this first seven verses. Um, but what we're going to do this morning, because Paul is, is in an introductory capacity here, he's opening up and introducing these concepts. We're going to comment on them as we go through, but what we're going to do is, is wait on him to develop them. And some of these he develops over the first five chapters. Some, you may have to hang around a while to get the rest of it. But, but what I want to do is encourage you, as, as we fly over this, so to speak, I want to encourage you as families, and, and Paul mentioned this last week, this is a great opportunity for you to do some archaeology here, to really dig in to some of these texts. And, and hopefully, as we study this, your interest will be piqued. Your children will begin to ask questions. You will have some things that maybe you didn't notice before. And you can, as, as we see it from the air, so to speak, you'll have an opportunity to say, oh, I, I want to get a closer look at that. Can we, can we zoom down in there? And I, and I would encourage you to do that. Romans, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. We're going to read today through verse 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some things that might be helpful to us as, as we 
try to put ourselves initially in, in the place of a hearer of this letter. Someone who would have been in Rome at around A.D. 56 or 57 uh, when, when they received this letter from this apostle. No apostle that we know of had ever been to Rome at this point. The church was founded more than likely by some Jewish proselytes who happened to be in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. Turn with me just to your left a little bit to Acts chapter 2. I'm just going to set the stage a little bit here. Starting in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, this is the, the Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit descends in flames of fire. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. There's two groups of people here, Jews who are uh, ethnic Jews here in Jerusalem. The other one were proselytes. Proselytes means these were Gentiles who converted to Judaism, who were here to witness this coming of the Holy Spirit. They witnessed a miraculous, audible, visible, physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit. They were here on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They went back to Rome and all the cities from which they had come. And the best theory is that it was among this group that the church at Rome was, was established. Paul has said, we see later in Romans, he says that I, I've desired to come to you for a long time now, but I haven't made it. Now, praise God, in God's providence, Paul didn't make it, because if Paul had made it, we wouldn't have Romans. Because Paul didn't make it at this time, he wrote the letter to them. And in God's providence, we have this, we have 16 chapters of the richest most complete testimony of the gospel, of the doctrines that, that we hold so dear. The church was not founded by apostles. In fact, as far as we know, it wasn't, had not even been visited by one at this point. But one thing that we do know about Rome, the emperor Nero had just taken over. Claudius, the previous em emperor, had actually kicked out the Jews and the Christians. What had happened, there was some infighting going on. The Jews were wanting the Gentile converts to become Jewish, meaning circumcised, keep the whole law, become a Jew, and then add Christianity as a layer on top of that. Paul addresses that to a degree, well, to an extensive amount in Galatians. But what we see is, is this is the context. So there was this infighting going on within the church. And under the reign of, of Claudius, he kicked them all out. All the Jews, all the Christians dispensed from Rome. How do we know that? Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Paul's in Corinth. 
And he's introduced as he meets a couple while he's there. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 18. This would have been roughly AD 49. This was during the reign of Claudius, about seven or eight years before the church in Rome received this letter from Romans, the letter from Paul. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul spends a year and a half co-laboring, because they have the same trade as tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila, or Prissa and Aquila. They're from Rome. Why are they not in Rome anymore? Claudius kicked them out, along with all the Jews and Christians. It's important for us to understand that, because what's happened, by the time Paul writes Romans, they've returned under the emperor Nero, they were allowed to return. What we know most about Nero is his cruelty, and rightfully so. He was a vicious, wicked man. But his first five years were kind of referred to as this golden age. There was a time of relative political peace and stability in Rome, and it's in that environment that Paul no doubt gets feedback from Priscilla and Aquila, about some of the, the ongoing doctrinal disputes. These were, these were faithful believers. Paul says in verse 8 and 9, and we'll see that next week, he, he actually commends them for their faith. But their faith was incomplete. They were not fully doctrinally established. So because he wasn't able yet to physically go to them, he writes the letter. And he writes this letter, and he introduces several concepts. He talks about this gospel of God, and that's really going to be our focus today. What is this Gospel. What is this gospel of God? See, so the, the couple things that, that we want to add about Rome. So you can kind of get in the mind of a resident, or perhaps a citizen, which would have been a meaningful distinction. But a citizen or a resident of Rome. There were three primary cultural influences in Rome. Judaism, as a cultural influence, had grown. In fact, so much so, they were kicked out at one point, they returned, but Judaism, mixed with Christianity, the infancy of Christianity, was beginning to take hold and influence culture. But the two prevailing thoughts were Greek, or Hellenist, and Roman culture. What these, 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 kind of, these three mindsets, these three cultural viewpoints, existed in, in a, uh, a tense harmony. The Greeks were the intellectuals and the thinkers and the philosophers. And they were able to come up with all these great systems of thought, but they didn't have the organizational structure to maintain their empire. The Romans, on the other hand, not big thinkers as, as a whole. They were extremely organized. And the Roman Empire had marched across most of the then-known world. So it's into this context, into this environment. If you're a resident of Rome in the mid-first century A.D., you would have been conflicted with Grecian thought, Roman thought, which was built on paganism, polytheism, idolatry of every sort, all manner of immorality and wickedness and things that we don't really like to talk about, but Paul, Paul's forced to address them in the next couple of chapters. As he, as he addresses head-on, the descent of man. 
And I hope as we, as we consider that, that we see that Rome in the mid-first century, not a far cry different from where we are today. We have a melting pot of all kinds of thought. Our culture is crying out for answers. Our culture, our church is confused about doctrine. We have these kind of vestiges left over from a biblical worldview. But in our postmodern age, we've embraced new thought, which is really old thought. That man is God. That God is disconnected somehow from men. That the gods of the Greeks, the gods of the Romans, were not concerned with men except for what they could use them and get out of them. And what we're introduced here by Paul is a God who needs nothing from man. But a God who has much, much to offer man. As we look here at this gospel, and we're confronted with this, it's a term that he uses in, in both the noun and the, and the verb form some 60 times in the, in the Roman epistle. And what does this mean? What is the gospel of God? And most of you know the term gospel literally means good news. So what is this good news? And was this a new term? Paul was using a term that would have been familiar. Again, in a, in a Greek or Roman mind, good news would have been a fairly common term. Not an everyday term, but one that's fairly common. For instance, if an emperor had a birth of a son, it would have been proclaimed in the city, good news. Good news. The emperor has just got word that in a faraway province they've had a military victory. The good news would have been brought back to Rome. The good news of a victory. Well, here Paul declares the good news of God. And it's quite a different matter. So what is this? What is this good news? This good news of the gospel. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 9, I do it all. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul's given up his whole life for this gospel. We probably ought to know what it is, hadn't we? Because there's much confusion in, in churches today, in our culture today. We think of the gospel in, in very simplistic terms. And the only time we really think about the gospel is it's for those people who don't know Christ. It's for those people who have yet to hear. It's for those people that we pray about in the prayer gram every week who don't even have the Bible in their language. The gospel's for those people. But is that all? Look with me here in our text. Again, as we fly over this, so to speak, I'm going to point out four prominent features of the gospel. This is not extensive. This is not exhaustive. These are four prominent features. The first is the providence of God is good news. Amen. The providence of God is good news. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. We have a gospel that was descended beforehand. Remember, we have three schools of thought, three primary schools of thought, the Greek, the Roman, and the Jewish. Each of them accused Paul for different reasons and at different times of having a new religion, of having a new idea. Tacitus, the, the historian from Rome, writes this. He says, checked for the moment, 
the pernicious superstition broke out again, not only through Judea, the home of the pest, but also through Rome, to which from all quarters everything outrageous and shameful finds its way and becomes the vogue. The Romans viewed this as some new religion. Now, typically, they weren't really opposed to new religions. They were pagans. They, viewed, they had a view of many gods. They worshipped all kinds of gods. The problem with this one was the Christians were monotheistic. That was the only thing that really rubbed them wrong. Does that sound familiar? In a relativistic culture, everything's okay. We're tolerant of everyone except the ones who say there's only one way. The ones who say there's only one Savior, there's only one Redeemer, there's only one way. Jesus says, I am the way. So the Romans looked at this and said, this is a new religion. We can't have this one. The Jews from the time of Christ said this was a new sect. Paul, in Acts chapter 21, he's accused by the Jews of saying, he's drummed up. He is, they made several charges against him. They said that he was violating the law and that he was going against the prophets. They said this was a new religion. Paul says, no, no, no. This is the same religion that's been preached by the law, the prophets. This is the culmination of the religion of our fathers. But the Jews accused him and said this is a new religion. The Greeks said this was a new religion. Galatians 3, I'm sorry, Acts 17. Turn, just turn over to the left again. We're going to hit Acts a couple times today. Acts 17. Starting in verse 16, Paul, in this address to the Athenian elite, the educational establishment, the intellectual crowd, he says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of four divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The Romans, the Greeks, and the Jews all accused Paul of bringing something new. So he starts out and makes it unambiguous. The gospel of God is not new. The gospel of God is the fulfillment of all that which he has promised beforehand. When does this beforehand begin? Turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And we've talked about this before. We, we preached this when we went through the early parts of Genesis, but that's been a while. So let's refresh ourselves. Starting in verse 15 of chapter 3, we know the story here. The serpent tempted Eve and she ate of the fruit. She gives to her husband, who's there with her. He also eats. They hide out from the Lord, and the Lord seeks out Adam specifically and says, Adam, where are you? Adam said, I was afraid. I was naked. The Lord said, who told you? Who told you you were naked? We've said this. The Lord doesn't ask the question because he doesn't know the answer. 
He's confronting Adam in his sin. But then God here in verse 15, he curses the serpent. And then in 15 he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The proto-evangelium, the first proclamation of the gospel. Paul says this was told beforehand. This isn't anything new. Immediately following the fall of our federal head Adam, God introduces the gospel. God introduces the gospel, the good news. The good news is, is that the providence of God, he has orchestrated these events up till now. Up to the time of Paul, when Paul writes to these Romans, up to the time of today, when we face very similar, very similar features in our cultural landscape, as did the Romans. Many in our culture have never heard the gospel. To them, it's brand new. They think they've heard it. They've heard something about a baby in a manger and a man in a red hat and a suit and reindeer, and, and it's all confused. We have the opportunity, as Paul did, to declare to our neighbors, our family, our friends, that this is nothing new. This was that the God of the universe, the creator of all that is, purposed from before time to provide a redeemer, to provide that seed. He also says, Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, he says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. As we studied the life of Abraham, we carried this theme. The gospel that was introduced immediately after the fall. God reminded his people over and over and over again that the gospel was his. The good news of a coming redeemer, the good news of the promised seed was still going. The promise had not been fulfilled in the time of Abraham. But we're told throughout Scripture that Abraham is justified by his hope in that promise. The providence of God is good news. He says through his prophets, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses speaks and says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Psalm 132, verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called 
The Lord is our righteousness. The gospel of God, the good news of God, is based on the providence of God. Based on the proclamation of God from the beginning that He would provide a seed, that He would provide redemption. From the fall, what has man promised? Death. Death as his rightful and just punishment for his sin. But what does God promise alongside that? Redemption. Redemption through a coming Redeemer. Redemption that the prophets told. We also see, Paul notes the Holy Scriptures. He says, through his prophets. And that word through is important. It's not by the prophets. It's not from the prophets, it's through them. God, this is God's gospel. It's not ours. It wasn't Jeremiah's, it wasn't David's, it wasn't Abraham's. This is God's gospel. This is his story. All of this is his story. We're vessels. On our best day, we're vessels. And that's all we are. He points out that this gospel came through the prophets. He points out these prophets recorded this in the Holy Scriptures. This is the only time this phrase, Holy Scriptures, is used in the New Testament. It's, and it's significant here. Again, Paul's writing to a group of essentially Judaizers who maintain that in order to be saved, you must keep the law. Even these Gentile converts... Even these proselytes had to be converted to Judaism first and then become Christians. Part of that was based on the fact that they began to read these rabbinical writings and elevate them to the level that it, that matter maybe even exceeded the prophets, the scriptures. This word holy means distinct and set apart. Paul differentiates this. This is, uh, this is unlike any other words, any other documents, any other stories that they had heard, the holy scriptures of God. Friends, as we study this, as we look into Romans, and we see the very words of God breathed out through this apostle, as he quotes often the prophets, what God revealed through the prophets, if we don't understand the holiness and the uniqueness and the power of these words, the very words of God, we can't understand the gospel. We will be tempted to water it down or add to it. But if we understand these as the word of God, may God subdue us and cause us to recognize that there's nothing we can add. And we dare not take anything away. The words of God. The good news is that God is sovereign. And see, the Greek and Roman minds saw the world as random. Saw the world as subjected to maybe capricious gods. Who just got angry with men. And did terrible things as a result of their anger. Or gods who were indifferent. Or gods who must be placated. Gods who must be appeased. 
That's not like the view of God in our culture today. See, we're confused about the very nature of God. And one of the things the gospel sets to do is clarify the, the nature of who he is. Our God is not capricious. Our God is not, our God doesn't change. Our God doesn't just get angry and do things unjustly. He doesn't get angry and do things contrary to his nature. We need to understand the holiness and the righteousness and the justice of our God. And as we study this in Romans, we're, I promise you, we're going to address those issues in much more detail, much more deeply. But I want, I want to introduce these things this morning. We live in a world that, that is confused about life itself. We live in a culture that's desperately seeking answers. And sometimes the best answer we can come up with is, well, this is what's good for me, but you've got to find your own answer. Yours is probably going to be different. We have a sort of a quasi-national holiday today, a sporting event. And one of the headlines for the last two weeks has been a commercial that's going to air. A commercial that frames a debate about the life that God has created and frames the debate in terms of choice or no choice. The gospel says God is sovereign. The gospel says we dare not make those decisions. The gospel says that Christ alone is the author of life beforehand. That he appointed life and he set about to redeem it from the beginning. The second thing I want to notice is the incarnation of God is good news. The providence of God is good news and the incarnation of God. This gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David, literally born from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power. Just don't gloss over that. Jesus was born. There's a lot of mamas in our church. A lot of mamas with sore feet and tired backs and aches and pains that have experienced the reality of childbirth and of pregnancy and of the unique sufferings that a mother can have long after the childbearing is over, weeping and praying for her children. Jesus was born. The Son of God, at a time appointed by God, entered into humanity, took on flesh, took on a body just like ours, with all the weaknesses, all the frailties, all the temptations, but without sin. But without sin. An important aspect of the gospel is this incarnation. Because if God had not taken on flesh as man, he could not serve in the office of our high priest. We see that in Hebrews. Galatians 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
The glory of the gospel is the incarnation of God himself taking on the flesh of man. He was descended from David. He took on this flesh, this glorious, glorious incarnation of God. We can't even wrap our brains around that. And one of the errors throughout history has been that Jesus wasn't really man. That Jesus was just kind of a spirit. That he just kind of looked like a man. The scripture, time and time and time again, affirms by word and observation. By word, declaring that he's fully flesh. By observation, noting the fact that he ate, that he got hungry, that he wept, that he got tired, that he slept to the bottom of a boat, that he just got flat worn out. He was human. He was human. And he had to be human. He had to be man. He had to be born under a law. Under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Our London Baptist Confession says this. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scripture, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, listen, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. We've remarked several times as we are faithful as a body to read through, systematically read through scriptures. We read through Old Testament scriptures. We read through New Testament scriptures. And I'll tell you, putting together a preaching schedule is, is complex enough. Trying to get it to match up with, with readings six months in advance on, you know, chapters out of the Old Testament and New Testament, we don't even try. Okay? But in God's providence, Luke chapter 3 today, what do we read? The descendant of David. Christ, born in the flesh, the descendant of David, as he promised, as he told over and over and over again. If God doesn't step into the realm of mankind, if God doesn't enter into the time-space continuum and take on the limitations of human flesh, he cannot be the sacrifice for those under the law. He cannot be that sacrifice. And because of what we read, because of the fall, we need a sacrifice. We need a redeemer. The good news is the providence of God. The good news is the incarnation of God. And third, the good news is the resurrection. The good news is the resurrection of Christ. This gospel, verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. 
He was declared to be the Son of God. Told you we turned to Acts a couple times. Turn with me again. Acts chapter 2. Verse 23. This is, this is Peter's great sermon there at Pentecost. After the, the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit, the accusations of drunkenness, Peter stands up and gives an explanation. In verse 23, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That word definite plan. It's a noun form of the same verb here that we see in, in Romans 1. He was declared according to God's definite plan. This wasn't just merely a, a, an unveiling or revealing of Christ. This was a predetermined According to time and space and purpose, a predetermined declaration that this is my son. This is my son. In fact, I'm going to raise him up to prove he's my son. He said it. He said all along he was the son of God. And he died apparently like every other man. Because he was one. But here's where it gets different. God raised him up because he wasn't like every other man. Son? God raised him up. He was not like every other man. Jesus was gloriously raised. He was raised in power. God demonstrates by his Holy Spirit the power and we can't fathom this. We really can't. We can try, and it'll keep us up tonight. We can't really fathom the power that it takes to raise a man from the dead. And not just resuscitated, and we've talked before about the difference. Not just resuscitated to die again. Raised for eternity. Raised in the same body he went into the grave with. The apostles later on still got to see the scars on his hands and his feet. Thomas put his hand in his side. It was the same body. But he was alive. This Jesus whom God crucified, he also raised from the dead, just like he said he would. The Spirit of God was the agent of this resurrection. The Spirit of God is in the business of bringing Life to the dead. Those of you who know that, those of you who know the gospel, who've experienced the effectual call and the work of the gospel, you know that. You know, just like the Apostle Paul, as he shared his testimony, he was on the road with letters to go persecute the church and kill some more people. God intervened. He was not on his way to God. Those of us who know Christ, we know we were not on the way to God. In the futility of our thinking, in, in the wickedness of our hearts, we were by no means, in no way, on the way to God. The Spirit of God broke through to us. Gave us life. 
raised us from the dead. Pricked our cold, dead, wicked heart and gave us life. The Spirit of God in power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that's indwelling me. And you who know Christ. It should grieve us when we see the gospel cheapened and made into a, an exercise in how to improve your life, how to make things better, how to make your marriage better, your finances better, your health better. God's providence, He may do all those things, but that's not the gospel. The gospel. It's about the resurrection of Christ. The gospel is about the power of God being revealed. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is just one chapter over to your right. If you're in Romans, you can find 1 Corinthians pretty easy. Starting verse 1, chapter 15. We see right, all, right away this term gospel again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures beforehand. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can, you say, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied but in fact christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by man as by a man came death the fall by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die so also in christ shall all be made alive the gospel the good news Concerns the providence of God. Concerns the incarnation of God. 
concerns the resurrection of God. We leave no quarter here for those who claim the, resula- re- the resurrection is not significant. Those who say, we can take the resurrection or leave it, we can still have Christianity without it. A lie. There is no Christianity. There is no faith. There is no gospel. There is no salvation. There is no hope without the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, we are still dead in our sins. But because Christ has been raised, we've been raised with him. In a way that we don't yet understand, but God will reveal to us. In the mind of God, we are already seated at the right hand of God. Declared righteous. Declared as having already been resurrected with Christ. As if we had already received our new body. We haven't yet. We still labor with this body of sin. But in the mind of God, at the declaration of God, we stand before Him clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Dressed, as it were, already in our new body. Even though we're not there yet. Christ has given us that first fruits of His righteousness. The good news is the resurrection. Finally, the effectual call of God is good news. The the effectual call of God is good news. Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at this, we look at the the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, announcing His coming Redeemer. We see the, the providence of God in revealing His Son in flesh. We see the power of God revealed in raising his son from the dead. And then we come to this last section. And let's just read this. as Including you who chose to belong to Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and chose to be his saints. Do we have to wait to chapter 8 and 9 of Romans to, to understand the election and the choosing of God? No. It just doesn't even fit, does it? When we look at the gospel... And the glorious work of the gospel. We can't look at this and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to, God's going to leave the rest of that to me and my work. And me mustering up enough faith, educating myself enough, working it all out in my mind and putting all the pieces together. No. No. For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This this word that he uses here, grace, this is a theme throughout all the the, the Pauline epistles. 150 plus times that word's used in the New Testament. A hundred of them or more are used in Paul's writings. Two dozen of them. Or here in Romans. 
this grace. Christ, through whom we have received this grace. What is this grace? Paul says it's the, he calls it grace and apostleship. And he links these two together. And when we think of grace in, in our day, we, we, that word takes on a whole bunch of different meanings. And we think about you know, f- physical beauty, grace, and a, and a, and a ballet, or, or an ice skater, or something graceful, or the graceful lines of a, of a work of art, or a sculpture. When we think about God's grace... We need to understand this in, in, in the way that the, that the biblical writers meant it. If we understand our nature from our federal head Adam, if we understand the very depth of our wickedness and depravity, and we come to a text like this that says, we've received anything from God, it has to be grace. The very breath that the most wicked has ever received is grace. But those whom he has called as his own, there's a particular grace as a result of his effectual call. And that means his specific call, his call on you as an individual. This isn't a call to a people or to a nation or to a family. This is a call from Almighty God to a depraved and wicked person, an individual, a child, a mom, a dad. It's a specific call. Paul links this, these terms, grace and apostleship, and he, and he says this, this concept of him being an apostle. He says the very foundations of the church we're built on the apostles. First Corinthians 3 and Ephesians 2, he elaborates on those. We won't turn to them, but he elaborates on this idea that this, this grace and apostleship, that God's extended his grace as a means of equipping the church, as a means of creating this obedience of faith. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. Starting in verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the working of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This grace and apostleship. It's about equipping those whom he's called. It's about building up and establishing and perfecting and growing those whom he's called. 
The gospel isn't just about a presentation of the plan of salvation. It isn't just how to get saved. The gospel isn't just how to avoid going to hell. It's an element of that. True. But the gospel is about this grace and this apostleship that equips us for every aspect of a life of godliness. And we see that here. Because he says this is for the sake of his own name. Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we understand the gospel. We understand the effectual call of the gospel. We understand the gospel ain't about me. The gospel ain't about you. All things were created by him and for him. The gospel is about redeeming a people set apart from eternity past to bring glory to the Son. The gospel is Christocentric. If we have a gospel that's anything other than Christ, if he's not the subject and the object and the verb in our gospel presentation, we've missed it. If he's not the one doing the action, if he's not the one receiving the glory, we've presented something other than the gospel. Christ is the culmination of all things. The gospel is the means by which he calls his own and equips us. Something else about this call. Call for the sake of his name among all the nations. Rome was an international city. We've talked about the the various thoughts and cultures that were present there. This was, this was written addressing some very specific issues doctrinally within the church. See, there were some who took pride in the fact that they were Jews by ethnicity. Paul says, and he expands on this later, there's advantage to that. The Jews were given the very oracles of God. But the gospel will result in an effectual call to members of every nation of every tribe, of every tongue, of every people group. Revelations 5. We've read this before, but we can't read it often enough. Because if we don't understand the expansive nature, not universal, the expansive nature of the gospel... We don't understand the extent to which grace has been poured out on men. Starting in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with the seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. 
from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. If we can't look forward to this, if we can't look forward to standing shoulder to shoulder with these brothers for whom we have prayed in Somalia and next door to us, If we can't, we're not looking forward to that. May I suggest you may not know the gospel. As believers, we look forward to a time of worship before the mighty God, offering songs of praise, casting our crowns at His feet, Worshipping Him. Admiring Him. Adoring Him. And doing so with every tribe and nation and tongue. And, and I think it's going to be great because as we, as we stand there in our resurrected bodies and we look around, we don't all look alike. And God in His, in His majesty has raised up a people from Himself from all over the place from all over this globe. He's called them. And He's made them His own. There's three parts about this, about this call. The call to belong. The call to belong. This would have had, if you were a citizen or a resident in Rome, a large portion of the population of Rome were slaves. So when you hear a phrase like this, you were called to belong to Christ. It would have had a different meaning than what we immediately think of today. He would have had an a, a emotional, visceral response from you. Called to belong to someone. But praise God, Paul develops this in Romans. And there's an element that, yes, we were bought with a price by, by his blood. We are not our own. He owns us. He can do with us whatever he wishes. But praise God, he is a benevolent master. He is not the cruel tyrant for which Rome was known. He's not the unjust master. He's a gracious one. He's a loving one who provides for his, for his servants. In fact... He calls us sons. He takes us into his household as sons. Puts a ring on our finger and a robe around our, our neck and declares us sons of the Most High God. And in our pride, we, we desire to be that Most High God. When we understand the gospel, we get to be sons of his. Sons of God. We're called to belong. He says also, to those in Rome who are loved by God, we're called to be loved. We're not called so that God can abuse us. We're not called so that God can suck us dry and take all of our gifts and use all our abilities and use all of our resources and wring us out. See, that was often the Roman view of God. The emperor was worshipped. 
Nero had all kinds of financial problems. Anybody who had any money was hiding in Rome. Because he would invent a crime, have them executed, and take their estate. Kind of sounds familiar, but I won't go there. But in his desire for wealth. And he was lifted up as a God. And Paul says, you will belong to a God who doesn't need you. He doesn't need your gifts. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your service. He's bought you for his own glory. For his own glory. Yes, he can use you however he pleases. But he didn't buy you with that heavy of a price to abuse you and abandon you. He called, called us to be loved. And he also called us to be holy. Verse 7, to those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints, to be set apart. Paul says he's set apart for the gospel of God. But that call to be set apart isn't limited to the apostles. The apostles were a definitive office at a specific point in time. Visible witnesses of the resurrected Christ. There are no apostles today. There are plenty who are called to be set apart, to serve him, to be loved by him, to belong to him. That's the gospel. The effectual call is good news. And I love this phrase. Love verse 7. To all those who are in Rome. To all those who are surrounded by wickedness on all sides. To all those who live in a, in a, in a, in a nation state. It's about advancement of their own political machine and their military muscle and their worldly might. To all those who are in a culture that wants to just suck you dry, that wants to use everything you've got and then some, to a culture that wants to abuse you, to those in Rome, to those in Rome who are called to belong, who are called to be loved, who are called to be holy. Grace to you and peace. Paul's, I hate to use this term, standard greeting, because there's nothing standard about it. But he uses this greeting, or a variation of it in every one of his epistles. Grace to you. Those in Rome, to those who are in a place who represented wickedness, to those who are in a place that represented all that was opposed to the gospel, those in Rome, grace and peace to you. Our London Baptist Confession, we'll go there one more time, says this about Christ. This number and order of offices is necessary. For in respect to our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. And in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable to God. And in respect to our averseness and utter inability to return to God, and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us.
to his heavenly kingdom. The gospel, the good news, is revealed in God's providence. The incarnation of God reveals the good news. The the resurrection of God declares that good news, declares the gospel. And the effectual call of God is good news. To the extent that we, we view the gospel as just something we preach to those who are unbelieving, reserved for a tent revival or an evangelistic crusade or, or a special evangelism service, we don't understand the gospel. The gospel is for those who believe. The gospel, he says in verse 16, is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is about conforming us to the image of Christ, keeping us, sanctifying us, saving us, yes. But the gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel is to be preached to all men. So then if the gospel is to the believer, do we just selectively preach it? Do we just think, I don't know about that guy. I'm not going to preach to him. No. No. The gospel is to be declared to all men. It is both an invitation and a command. It's a command given to all men to believe, to repent, to follow Christ. But only those whom the Father draws, only those to whom the Holy Spirit radically changes and gives life to dead, dry bones, only to those is the gospel fully revealed. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in the gospel. Lord, help us today to understand it. Lord, help us today to admire the beauty of Christ. To rejoice in the finished work of the, of the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Savior. Father, for those who are here today who've never heard the gospel, those who've heard, but it's, it's just fallen on that hard soil. Those who've heard, but the, the cares of this world has snatched up those seeds of faith. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work. Father, we pray that you, you quicken hearts. That for the believer here today, that we would, would be, that our vision of you and your gospel would be magnified. That the glory of Christ would be expanded in our eyes and in our understanding. And for the unbeliever here, Father, for for that man or that woman or that child who has, has not sensed the specific calling of God. Father, I pray that your spirit would work in them. Father, I pray that your spirit would enter 
a dark and cold and dead heart and breathe life. I pray that God, God, that eyes would be open and ears would be, would be opened. And that the glory of Christ through his gospel would be revealed. And that in that you would be glorified as you build a people for yourself. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.